go to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, we will be looking uh, specifically at the first 10 verses. When I don't preach for a couple weeks, I tend to go a little bit long, longer than normal, so let me get right to it, jump right in. 1 John chapter 3, I'll start in verse 1. See, it's a command, see or behold what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Let's pray one more time. God, thanks for this this morning. Thank you that we get to gather around your word. We pray now that you would open the eyes of our heart, that we could see wonderful things from it, and that you would help us to leave here changed. Um, with new desires, new affections for you uh, as we walk out those doors this morning. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Um, so I, I, I am excited to get into this book. I don't know about you guys, but I, over the last several months, we've been in the Gospel of John, chapters 13 through 17, the Upper Room Discourse, um, and then we jumped into the epistle of 1 John, uh, the same writer, the Apostle John, who walked with Jesus while he was here on this earth, who leaned back against him at, at the Last Supper. And I, I have just been personally uh, extremely blessed and encouraged by studying John's uh, language that he uses. It's theology. It's very, it's very simple, and yet it's very profound. And I mentioned this a little bit last week, just in, in, the, in the intro, uh, before Mark got up and brought the word to us, but it, most likely this epistle was written later on uh, in the first century. And um, there's some debate as to, uh, some scholars think that, that the whole canon of scripture was written uh, before AD 70, by, right about AD 70. But there's some others who believe that the book of Revelation um, and also probably First John was written a little bit later, like in 80, 90, somewhere, somewhere in there. Either way, whichever dating, it's still later on when John probably writes this. And, and again, John is an old man. He's kind of like Grandpa John at this point. And I don't know uh, if, if you've noticed this, and I, don't, I, I mean this in a, in a good way. Um, I'm 40. My boys think I'm old, though. They tell me I'm old, or I act like an old, not cool guy. Um, but I do think there's something to it that as you get older, you just kind of tell it like it is. Amen? Just kind of tell it like it is. And because, you know, you're done trying to impress people. <laughs> like, I don't care what you think about me. Um, and, uh, and, and I think there's some of that in John, but it's not in an old, crusty, get off my front yard type of way. 
it's in a grandpa, fatherly, loving, compassionate, caring way. And, um, and I think it's helpful and it's comforting because, uh, let me just say this, clarity brings comfort. Clarity brings comfort. And John is extremely clear in what he's saying here. I mean, it, just to tease that out for just a second, you know, um, if you've ever been lost, and you know, you probably got to go back before the days of where we had a, everybody had a GPS and a map in our in our pocket on our phone. Um, but if you've ever were ever lost and you kind of drove around and didn't know where you were until all of a sudden you saw a landmark or something that you knew, and boom, you had clarity. And maybe it's not exactly where you want it to be, but at least you knew where you were at. And then from that point of clarity, you could go forward to where you wanted to be. Um, if you've ever been trying to get a hold of somebody that you love, you've ever been trying to get a hold of one of your kids, you know, you, know, you, you buy your kid a cell phone and then they don't answer their cell phone when you call them anyway. Um, but uh, you just, you just want to know where they're at. And it's good when you finally get a hold of them. Um, and you know where, where they are. If you've ever had some sort of a physical malady of any kind, uh, it's one thing to have the symptoms or the sickness and to be dealing with the discomfort of that. And of course, you don't want it to be anything major. But at the same time, when you finally find out at least what it is, if you've ever battled a sickness but not really sure what was causing, what was causing it, it's always good to have clarity. Clarity brings comfort. And John, throughout this letter, if I can just run through some of the language um, throughout the whole letter, not just in this passage, but here's how he speaks. He, he speaks with contrast. He brings clarity, which brings comfort, but through contrast. Light or darkness, truth or lies, us or them, good or evil, love or hate, children of God or children of the devil, righteousness or lawlessness, abiding in life or abiding in death, spirit of Christ or spirit of the Antichrist, and, and probably most foundationally, belief or unbelief. He brings clarity through contrast, through very stark language. Um, but it brings comfort because John is writing in the midst of a time of great theological confusion about who Jesus was. And man, let me just say, we live in a time of great theological confusion about who Jesus is. And John is kind of sneaky in his writing, and it's something that just so, I've just been so captured by, just his, again, it's all inspired by the Holy Spirit, ultimately, yet working through human authors and their personalities and the way God had created them in his image. And, and, and John, he just, he writes in this kind of poetic form, and, and he does something kind of sneaky, but awesome. Um, at the very, the, the very end of his letter, the very last verse of this letter, chapter five, verse 21, he just throws this in here and it seems like it's out of nowhere, but it's not. He just ends the letter like this. Little children, keep yourself from idols. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. You know, like idolatry, where did, where did that come from? Because he hasn't really mentioned idolatry much. But idolatry is what he's been describing. Is that the, the theological um, uh, problem that was happening um, and confusion that was happening back in his day is that false teachers were coming around and, um, and it, was, it was a false teaching called Gnosticism. And although Gnosticism wasn't really going to be a, a, a full-fledged thing until like the second century AD, um, the, kind of the roots of it, the roots of that teaching were already here in the first century and John is, is, is writing to address that, is that they were creating a Jesus in their own image. They were creating an idol and the exact same problem exists today within the church in the time in which we live, is that we're trying to make God, we're trying to make a Jesus in our own image. But here's the reason why that's a really big problem, is because idols do not save. Idols do not deliver. Idols will not heal. Idols will not change you. They will not transform you. They will leave you stuck in your sin. And John, again, this is his, his comforting fatherly heart, although he speaks in, in, in these you know, very distinct, contrasting uh, uh, words and vocabulary and, and, and language. Um, he wants us to know the real Jesus. The real Jesus. 
And so I can just catch us up to this place. You know, he starts off in chapter one. He says, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. No darkness, no sin. He is perfect. See, the, the teaching of that day was like, well, yeah, you know, Jesus came, but he probably, it probably wasn't like a real body. It, it, was, it was more of like maybe a spirit that people saw. And, and so their, their teaching then was teased out from that. Is that, yeah, you know, we, we believe, we have this knowledge. Gnosticism means knowledge. And we, we, we believe in God. Yet this body, it's just going to do what it's going to do, you know. This body, this flesh is just kind of like, we're just kind of irrational animals and we're just kind of do what we want. And John says, no, 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 no. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. We need to walk in the light as he is in the light. If we want to have fellowship with him, we crucify the flesh. We have died with Christ. And so we, we want to pursue lives of holiness. But, but throughout the whole thing, going back to that idea of, of idolatry, is if you worship the real Jesus, the more assurance, the more comfort, the more clarity you're going to have that you truly know him. Because you will see the real Jesus deliver you because the real Jesus does deliver. But false Jesuses, false gods, idols, do not. And specifically in this passage this morning, what John is gonna do uh, to bring clarity to us, he's he's gonna bring clarity in about four different areas. He's gonna bring clarity in regards to who we are, who we will be, what he has done, and how we should live. He's gonna bring clarity in these four areas, who we are, who we will be, what he has done, and how we should live. And I'm telling you, as we we look at these things this morning, I've been praying all week and I'm even praying now as I'm talking that we would have hearts that would be able to receive this and that it wouldn't just be words but that the word would come with power and with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction of sin. Number one, who we are. Who we are. Very straightforward. It's already been mentioned this morning. We are God's children. We are God's children. Verse one, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. And again, some of your translations, maybe NASB, probably King James, has the word behold there. I actually like the word behold better than just see, but notice that it's a command. It's a command. Behold, look, see. See what? See what kind of love the Father has given to us. Why does he have to command us to see it? Because we don't see it. Because we miss it. We miss it all the time. We do not abide in the love of God. We're distracted by other things. We get our eyes caught on the darkness. When the most beautiful thing, the, the most wonderful treasure in all of the world has been offered to us and it is given to us who have believed in Christ Jesus. And that is that God is our Father and we are his children. This is an amazing love. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. Who, who's us? Us. We who were once darkness. We who were once sinners, but not any longer. The Father has given it to us, all of grace, that we, that we, that I, Eric Miller, that I should be called a child of God, that you should be called a child of God. Unbelievable. We who once were dead in our trespasses and sins, he has made alive by his grace, pouring out his love into our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. Regeneration. Supernatural, all of God, not of man. Man is dead, but God is life. (laughs) That we should be called children of God, and he says, and so we are. Is that your identity this morning? It's a pretty simple song we sang there at the beginning. You're a good, good father. It's who you are, it's who you are, and I am loved by you. It's who I am, it's who I am. The gospel doesn't just give us something that we didn't have, it makes us something that we were not. Um, We once were his enemies and we have been made alive. God wants us to have our identity rooted in being his child. Um, It's not just a concept. It is a concept, but it's, it's more than that. 
if you asked any of my boys if I love them, uh, and hear me, I'm, I'm far from a perfect dad, okay, to be sure, but it would grieve me if you asked them if I love them, and they go, ah, you know, I kind of get the concept. I've been doing a study on what love is in the Greek and in the original languages and trying to grasp it and trying to, trying to understand it. And, you know, there's agape and phileo and these different types of love. And it would make me sad. I mean, they, they wouldn't answer like that, obviously. But that's how we talk about the love of God sometimes. It's all up here. It's all up here. And we're not amazed by it. You say, well, Eric, I, is that my fault? Like, I, I want to be amazed by it. I want to be amazed by his love. Well, let me, I want to, I want to uh, set something before you that I, I, I think is true. Like, I'm not saying this like it's not true. But, but examine your own, your own heart. Is that, do you, do you find it uh, challenging to take the posture of a child in the context of your relationship with God. Because here's the deal, um, I, want, I want to be clear. Our attitudes and actions do not determine the objective reality of being God's child. The gospel does that. If you have been born again, and again, look here, look at the last couple of verses of chapter two. He says, now little children abide in him so that when he appears, uh, we may have confidence and not shrink from him at, in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure of this, that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So if you're practicing righteousness, it's because something has happened to you. You've been born of him. You've been born again. And then he goes into verse one, you, you, are, you are God's child. The gospel determines the objective reality of our status as, as God's children. But I think that sometimes the reason that we don't experience the love of God uh, in our hearts, and it seems to all be up here, is, is because the subjective experience of being God's child um, is sometime, sometimes hindered by our posture of being self-sufficient and independent rather than having a childlike attitude of dependence and, self, uh, and of reliance upon the Father. Does that make sense? So let me say, when I say posture of a child, in my home, I'm the husband and I'm the dad. And Hannah and I, you know, she's the mom, we're the, we're, we're, we're the parents. If we were sitting around one day and all of a sudden the electricity goes out, it would be weird if I go, Finn, did you not pay the electric bill? No, that's, that's, my, that's my responsibility. He does, he's not to assume the posture um, of, of, of a father. You know, or, Rowan, are you making sure the bills are getting paid on time? Um, you know, sitting around at about six o'clock, Jordan, where's supper? Why isn't supper ready? You burn the house down. Um, it, it's, the, their posture is that of a child. Hananize is, is the posture that of, of a parent. And my point is, is that in our relationship with God, um, listen, they, my, my boys, could, they, they could get up and they could move to the other side of the world. They could, uh, they could uh, I don't know, dye their hair and get plastic surgery and to try to make themselves not look like Hannah and I. Um, but nothing would change the objective reality that they are my kids. That's true because of the gospel. But, again, this love of God that's been poured out in our hearts, I don't think we approach him many times with a posture of childlike dependence, but rather an attitude of independence and of self-sufficiency. And this is why throughout this letter, you'll just see John again and again, children, 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 little children. Why does he do that? Because I think one of John's goals um, in referring to them throughout this letter as children and little children is to help them embrace this posture of childlike dependence. 
Is that where your heart's at today? Or do you feel like you gotta pay the bills? You gotta cook the supper. You gotta make it happen. Again, in the context of your relationship with God. We grow, we mature, to be sure. God wants that for us. But if you, if you talk to anyone who you would look up to as a mature believer in Jesus Christ, I promise you the only way that they've gotten there is by having this posture of humility and childlike faith. It doesn't, it doesn't happen anyway. And this love is amazing. And we miss it all the time. This is the, world, the reason why the world does not know us <coughs> is that it did not know him. In the beginning of verse two, beloved, we are God's children right now, right now, right now, this morning. You are God's child if you've trusted in Jesus as your savior. But John wants to bring clarity here, not just on who we are, but on who we will be. Notice he, he transitions very distinctly. Beloved, we are God's children now, and then he moves to, and second part of verse two, what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Don't miss this here, verse three. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. How are our lives changed? How are we transformed by the power of God and not the power of self-help? And believe me, if you, if you go into the average Christian book section in many Christian bookstores, what you will find is not actually Christian. What you will find is worldly self-help. That if you try a little bit harder and if you can just be a little bit more disciplined and if you can just white knuckle it and get through and then not give up, then you'll change. Transformation comes through looking at Jesus. That, again, another, another old song that we sing. We haven't sang it here in a while, but open the eyes of my heart. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord, open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. That should be our prayer. That should be our request every day of our lives because we are changed as we behold him. And then ultimately, one day, how will we be transformed? Because we will see him as he is. In that moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we will see him and we will be changed because we will see him as he is. Now, now don't miss this here. Because again, in, in all of John's writing here, if you, if you don't lock in to the angle that John is coming at it from, many people take 1 John and they read it and they read it through a man-centered lens of self-effort and they become extreme legalists. It's not what John's doing here. Notice, he does not say that we purify ourselves in order to have hope. He's saying, we have this hope, and if we keep our eyes focused on this hope, we will be purified. Not the other way around. Hope brings purity. And many people, you've heard me talk about this before, especially in this area, they live their entire lives trying to purify themselves to give themselves hope. If I could say it another way, using some other theological terms, they, they, they try to um, uh, make their justification hinge on their sanctification. Or they try to make their justification feed on their sanctification. That's not how it works. Our sanctification, our becoming progressively more like Christ feeds on our justification, on the objective reality of what he has done for us in him. And in the end, and again, if all that you're like, what are you talking about, justification, sanctification, and purity, and hope, and you know, I don't, I don't quite understand. It, it all comes down to simply knowing that Jesus is going to do what he promises to do. That's why we have hope. Listen to Romans chapter eight. Again, very similar language of both hope, but also of God as Father and us as children. He says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom, what's the spirit doing us? By whom we cry, Abba, Father. 
The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. So heirs, now, so now we're, we're looking future. We're, we're going to get to hope here. If children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is going to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Again, what John is saying here, when we see him, we're going to be like him. We're going to be changed. All of creation is waiting for this day. Paul goes on in verse 20, for the creation was not subjected to futility, not, was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will one day be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. That was a great line. Obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. In other words, even us, even us who have the Spirit of God living in us, we too groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we will wait for it with patience. This should be our attitude. It's longing, waiting, looking for the day when Christ comes back. And here's the thing, folks. Pragmatics. In other words, just, just practical. Um, it, it, this is where, by, by pragmatics, I mean, this is where the average Christian seems to live. Is, is, they don't say this, but you know, have conversations with people and they're basically like preacher just tell me what to do and you know just I don't care about why it works I just just give me something that works they're we're just practical we just we just want results we want to you know put in our money or punch in the code and we want the candy bar to come out or the pop can to to, to come out that's pragmatics we, we we're motivated by practicals making it work hear me Pragmatics will not produce lasting perseverance. The only thing that will produce lasting perseverance in the life of the believer is if you have a hope that one day you are going to see him, he is coming back, and he is going to change everything. Everything. Abuse, hate, murder, adultery, pornography, theft, greed, which drives crippling poverty, sickness, human trafficking, the neglect of children, abortion, sexual immorality of any kind, anger, gossip, rage, relational dysfunction, gender confusion, and the wicked indoctrination of our kids with the LGBTQ plus agenda. One day, Jesus is going to come back, the one in whom there is no darkness at all, and it will all be wiped away, every bit of it. All the darkness gone. And if you once were that, but you've now been made a child of God, we long, we long for that day. That is our great hope. That Jesus is going to transform everything, including us. What could be better? <laughs> that is a high and holy truth. And the world thinks we're crazy for believing it. But we're not. Because the hope of God has transformed my life and I know your life as well. Going from that high and holy idea to a really simplistic analogy, if I could. It's not perfect. Work with me a little bit. But it's like, put, it's like putting on your pants. <laughs> um, this life, when, when we get saved, we put the one leg in, right? Unless you just somehow jump in at the same, I don't know how you do that. But anyway, most of us, we just put the one pant leg on. And then there's that awkward transition, at least for me. I'm not, I've never been flexible, but I'm not, you know, I have trouble putting my socks on. I, I wore shoes with shoelaces today, but usually I prefer the slip-ons because tying your shoes is a lot of extra effort. It's exhausting. It's like, why do I want to do that? I'll just slip them on. But you got that transition of like you got the pants and you're you know pulling it you're like is it really that hard for you I'm like yeah it is so I'm sorry you know I'm being transparent here um but it's like all of this life if I could just overly simplify it all of this life 
once we come to know Jesus, it's like we have one pant leg on. And all of this life, until we see him, or we die and go to be with him in glory, it's getting that other pant leg on. And sometimes we kind of stumble and fall, and we're not, we're not, we're, it's just an in-between stage. And it feels, and it feels awkward sometimes. And it's why, you know, even earlier in John's letter, although he, he speaks in, in very, with very distinct language of, you know, light and darkness and truth and lies and all this, you know, he said earlier in the letter that if anyone of us says we don't have sin, we're, we're a liar. And the truth is not in us. But there is coming a day when we die and go to glory or he comes back. Could be any day. And we will be fully clothed. <laughs> we, we, we will fully be standing in him as we, were, as we were made to be. We long for that day. Just who we are, who we will be. But third, John builds all this upon squarely upon what Christ has done. Two very distinct statements in a very short amount of time in this little passage. In verses four through 10, you get very, uh, two very distinct statements about the exact purpose as to why Christ came to die. Um, one in verse five, and then the other one in verse eight. First of all, verse five, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. Verse eight, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Why did Christ come? To take away sin and to destroy the one who is the father of sin, the devil. That's why he, that's why he came. Now, John, in these verses, he, uh, <laughs> again, just very kind of straightforward, puts it out there. He, he, right in the immediate context, um, he, he, he makes these statements, and he really doesn't go in to a lot of detail and doesn't seem to be really concerned with telling us how he took away sins or, or how he destroyed the works of the devil as much as he just wants to tell us that this is absolutely the purpose for which he came. He's like, just, just know this. This is true. This is true. However, if we, if we dig around the book a little bit, some of the uh, places where you'll see, first of all, first of all specifically that, that statement that he appeared for the purpose of taking away sins, you'll remember back in chapter 2, Verses 1 and 2, he says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation, um, Bible word, you probably won't hear the word propitiation used a lot uh, outside of the Bible. In fact, the, the Greek word for, that's translated in English as propitiation is only used a couple of times. Uh, in the New Testament, and it's this idea uh, of appeasement, of appeasement, that Christ appeased, he absorbed the wrath of God by his sacrifice on the cross. But he was the propitiation, is really the emphasis. There, there was nothing, there weren't other options. He was the propitiation, he was the appeasement for the justice that God required which either needs to be paid by us in eternity separated from God, and the, well, separated from the good aspects of God and experiencing his wrath forever, or it was, it was absorbed by Jesus on the cross. It's like the old song that we sing, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. He is the propitiation for our sin. In Revelation chapter 5, of course, also recorded for us uh, by John, the writer of this epistle, says, One of the elders came, el elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. 
And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. So get this, John says, who's going to open this scroll, which is like this title deed to the earth. This is what he's going to clean up all this mess. And one of the elders says, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he looks to see this lion. And instead of seeing a lion, he sees a lamb. As though slain. Having shed his blood to ransom a people. His blood, the propitiation for our sins. Not only did he come to take away sin, but he came to destroy the works of the devil. What a, what a great, straightforward verse. Amen? <laughs> he came to destroy the works of the devil. One of the lies that the devil gets us to believe is that his power, his might, his lies are greater than Christ's power, Christ's might, and Christ's truth. That is a lie. Many of us believe the lie that we just always need to be this way because I'm just weak and, and you know, the, the devil's strong and, you know, maybe these are even like ancestral strongholds or something and, you know, the spiritual warfare's thick or whatever. I don't care! Jesus Christ is Lord. He wants to set people free from the darkness. No matter what it is, the blood of Christ is enough. It is enough if you walked in here this morning with bondage, with real spiritual bondage, sin that you just, habitual sin that you cannot get set free from, I want to tell you that it, it, it's not like, well, well, Kenny, maybe, or if, if, I, if I, you know, I don't know if I come to church more often or, or, or whatever. Jesus Christ is able to set you free. It ain't no thing to him, okay? It's a big deal to us. We can't do it, but he can. He came to destroy the works of the devil. When it says destroy here, it's more in other places in the New Testament where this word is used. It's the idea of being broken down, not necessarily annihilation. That is coming someday along with our sin. The devil will also be completely annihilated someday. But it's this idea of being broken down, or if you think of like, it's, it's like the picture of uh, an evil superpower um, who still exists and who should not be forgotten, but who has been significantly disarmed. His nuclear weapons have been taken away. He's been disarmed. And not to, you know, I don't want to steal the thunder for next week, but if you'll just jump over to chapter 4, verse 4. Again, very another straightforward verse. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater than your sin. Amen? He's greater. You might not be experiencing all of it right now. You might have walked in here this morning with all sorts of darkness and bondage, but that does not change the fact that Jesus is greater. And if you will come to him and believe in him and keep on believing in him and abide in him, he will set you free. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. Revelation chapter 12, verses 10 and 11, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God, and they have conquered him. How? By the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For, and this is key, they loved not their lives even unto death. The reason the devil has been disarmed, according to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, listen carefully. It says, since therefore children share in flesh and blood, he himself, being Christ, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver those who through fear of slavery were subject, 
those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Here's the picture. The devil is a slave owner. He's a taskmaster. He used to rule in your life. Sin reigned in your life. He reigned in your life. But if you have been set free by the power of God, if you have been born again and the spirit of God lives in you, he now stands there with his whip and he cracks it. And back in the day before you knew Jesus, you, you jumped to that. You jumped when he cracked the whip because he was your master. But he is your master no longer. He is your master no longer. You have been set free in Christ and you have got to choose to believe the truth that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And when he cracks his whip, he can crack it all day long. You do not need to listen to it because whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Amen? But John's point here, all sin is ultimately devilish in nature. Sin is always satanic. Not just some sins, all sin is ultimately satanic. But to be children of the one whose express purpose was to send his son into the world to take away sins and destroy the works of the devil and yet be at peace with sin and the author of that sin, which is the devil, is an incongruence that cannot be accepted. And that's John's whole, whole point here and our last point that we're going to segue into um, is that John's not just bringing clarity on who we are, who we will be, what Christ has done, but he wants to bring very much clarity on how we should live. Maybe up to this point you're like, okay, I like those first three points, who we are, who we will be, what Christ has done. But here's where the rubber hits the road and where the rub comes. Because John is also going to tell us how we should live. And he's going to be just as clear. And I'm going to sum it up in, in, in two ways. Two ways. It's like two pedals on a bike, okay? You don't want just one. You're not going to go very fast or far, and you're going to look weird, okay? But you need both. How should we live? We need to abide in Christ, abide in Christ, and secondly, we make war with our sin. Abide in Christ and make war with our sin. Verse 6, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Now listen, obviously this is not speaking of sinless perfection. That is coming someday when we see him, we will be perfectly like him. However, the fact that we still stumble in this life, it never, ever, 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 ever is an excuse for our sin, ever. And this is where the rub comes. Is that if we are abiding in Christ and we have the privilege, we have the ability of abiding in Christ because of what Christ has done and if we've been truly born again, the Spirit of God lives in us. If we are abiding in Him, we are free from the power of sin. We will be free from the presence of sin, finally, totally, completely, fully, in glory. Not now. But we are free now from the power of sin as we abide in Christ. Again, we talked about this several weeks ago when we were in the Upper Room Discourse in John 15. Says we, and, and I said something um, there that it's like, I said, we must understand that abiding is not so much something that we strive to attain as it is something that we are already perfectly fitted to do. It's that in Christ we were made to abide in him. It's the idea of being at home, of being at home in him. It's, it's we were made to abide. I don't know how else to say it. Um, most of the time when we go on vacation, the place where we're staying is nicer than the home that we live in sometimes. Go to Florida, the house has a pool. We don't have a pool at our house. I like to have a pool, but we, you know, we, but even when I'm there for a week or 10 days or whatnot, I just long to get home. You know what I mean? And it's good to sleep in your own bed. <laughs> even though it might not have been as nice as the bed you were sleeping in. There's something about home. Folks, we were made to be at home with Christ. We were made to abide in him. The opposite of sinning isn't not sinning. The opposite of sinning is abiding. And so many of us try to do what I just said can't be done. The opposite of sinning isn't not sinning. 
The opposite of sinning is abiding. As if we abide in him, we will not keep on sinning. But then also right along with it, and this is, this is again, I'm saying abide in Christ, make war with your sin. It, to say the same thing another way using biblical language, it's faith and repentance. What is genuine faith? Genuine faith is always marked by repentance. What is real repentance? Real repentance is always marked by turning towards Christ or faith in Christ. Abiding in Christ and making war with our sin. Again, he says in verse five, in him there is no sin. Verse six, he mentions, you know, he mentions keeping on sinning. He's speaking here of, of, of habitual sins. Verse eight, he uses this language. He says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. When I say make war on your sin, I'm speaking about your attitude towards it. What is your attitude towards sin? Of course you sin. Of course you sin. What is your attitude towards it? Whether you sin or not is not the issue. It is your attitude towards it. This is a great quote. It's not the whole thing. It's just partial. And then I want to kind of run with the picture that she puts forward here. But Rosaria Butterfield uh, used to be a tenured professor of English and women's studies at the University of Syracuse. And before converting to Christ in 1999, um, embraced an openly homosexual lifestyle. And the other day, uh, I, I saw just a brief quote from her. It was, it was on Twitter, so you know it was brief. But, but this was just gold. She said that we, as Christians, we look at our sin through the crosshairs of an instrument of execution. And that instrument being the cross. Now, do you see the picture? Crosshairs, Finn uh, just got a BB gun for his birthday. Not a little Red Ryder BB gun, but like a legit BB gun. Don't mess with him. If you need any squirrels, taken out. Finn's your man, okay? Um, but he's been working on sighting that thing in. Crosshairs, the scope. The crosshairs of the, the cross. That we view our sin through the crosshairs of the cross that Jesus died to destroy this. He died to destroy the works of the devil. And if I can just run with that picture, again, that we look at our sin through the crosshairs of an instrument of execution. The cross gives us shoot on sight authorization with our sin. We get our sin in our crosshairs and it pops up in our life. This is not who I am. I'm a child of God. We don't need to pray. Can I pull the trigger? Can I take it out? Yes. It is why Christ came to die. We crucify the flesh. Sin is an escaped fugitive who was once a selfish friend of yours. You do not give any quarter to this enemy or you are guilty of aiding and abetting a known felon. We must crucify our sin. Folks, how do we do that? Through the lens of the cross. The one in whom we abide is the very one who laid down his life to take away sin and to destroy the works of the devil. The worship team, you can come up. We're gonna close. Um, very quickly, as you know, this language throughout John, as, I, as I've been reading it here over the last couple of weeks, and especially, it's been, uh, sometimes it, it, week to week, I can... Uh, I don't know, I can just get into sermon prep mode and I'm just studying for a sermon. I'm not just reading it for myself, if I'm honest. No, I shouldn't do that, but I, I fall into it. And over the last couple of weeks, as I haven't been prepping as much and, and just reading it, um, you know, you, you pick up on all these little motifs that John has of new creation and life and light. And, and you think about uh, almost certainly one of the things that John was, was hearkening back to when he speaks of, of light um, is the light in the very beginning, that in the creation of the world, the earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the first thing that God says is, let there be light. And then you know what God does with the light and the darkness? He separates them. He separates them. And then he separates the land from the dry sea and he separates the waters above from the waters below, the sky and, and the seas and, and, and all those things. It's about part of creation. Here's the point. Part of creation and making it beautiful is separating things. And I say this 
because very practically in your life, I, I can tell you with full assurance this morning on the authority of the word of God, and as John speaks throughout this letter again in that very stark contrast of light, darkness, truth, lies, children of God, children of the devil, one of the things that I guarantee you God is doing in your life, whether you acknowledge it or not, is he's wanting to separate some stuff because he is trying to make you beautiful. He's trying to form you into the image of Christ. Don't resist it. Repentance is part of the Christian life. This is what he's doing. He's good at it. And him in whom there is light and there is no darkness at all, you know, I have yet to see any darkness that puts up a fight to the light. It just doesn't. We flip on the lights in here, boom, it's gone. The darkness doesn't, doesn't hang around. The light of Christ comes into every area of your life. He will change you. Bow your heads with me. Just a couple quick questions as we close. Is your posture one of childlike dependence? Ask him. Tell, God is not ashamed in any way if you ask him. He's not displeased in any way if you ask him to receive the fullness of his love. Um, is your practical purity rooted in the steadfast hope of Christ's return? Or is your practical purity rooted in self-determination in your own efforts? There's no sin that Christ's blood cannot cover, folks. As we close today, and we're gonna sing here in just a second, I just wanna say, like, if you're here this morning and you feel like you are in bondage to sin, I want to tell you something. It's okay. It's okay. Christ loves you, but his power is available to you this morning by faith. And you can pray and receive it right where you're at, or if you want to, I'm going to be standing down front here. We're not going to make a big show out of it or anything like that, but if you want to come down front, and what you want prayer as we sing this last song, I want you to come this morning. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and his light is still powerful and rules over the darkness. No matter what it is, he came to take it away, and he wants to make you his child. He loves you. Father, thank you for being good to us. Thank you for your word. Change us from the inside out. And let Jesus Christ have all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise from our lives. In your name I pray. Amen.